the Science Inside podcast. This is the Science Inside with DJ Keys and Elna. Welcome to the show. It is Science Inside. My name is Elna Schultz. And I'm DJ Keys. In our very last show for the year, can you believe it, Keys? Tonight is the last one we're doing. It's actually been a long journey, eh? Yeah, I think it's been almost 40 shows this year yeah. covering such a wide variety of topics, of talking to different scientists. And I hope that everybody who listens has taken something away from it, mm-hmm. and, you know, learned something new about science or just taken away the fact that science can be really weird and funny at times. Yeah, definitely. So today on our last show, we're going to look at some of the world's sustainable resources. I'm pretty sure you all know by now that we need to take care of these resources and they need to be retained for future generations so that they can be enjoyed. And that's natural resources like minerals, water, food, but also electricity, gas, chemicals. That's actually a lot of them. And I have to say, an increase in the world population will automatically obviously result in a need for more of these resources to be made and used, right? So I think it will ultimately mean that the resources themselves had a lot of demand to deal with. There's a lot of pressure on them. And that on its own also comes with a bit of a problem when it comes to managing them. Definitely. There needs to be one of the things I think that are that is quite important is a better balance between how we share these resources between less economically developed countries, especially those with a background of colonialism Mm -hmm. and those more developed countries. And it's really important that we conserve these natural resources for generations through sustainable management. That's exactly how we are going to use them. That's exactly my thoughts on. I mean, I also believe that we can actually make all the noise we want about alternative resources, this and that. I mean, we can even take it as far as developing alternative resources and in order to, so to speak, ease the strain on the the resources that we have right now. But the point is, alternative resources can also be very expensive and maybe also take time to also develop. So we need to cherish what we have at the moment. I mean, if you think about nuclear at the moment, the debate going on, a lot of people think it will work, but it comes at a very high cost you know mm. so natural resources could actually be more efficient and uh, and actually can be used more efficiently rather than prevent them from being used rather quickly or quicker than actually they should be mm. and at the end of the day i don't think there are any silver bullets nothing is going to change the fact that we are using yeah. our planet we need to use it to continue to live yeah. but how can we do that better with the least impact in the most renewable way yeah and in in that way allow the really precious natural resources to live more comfortably if i can say it like that yeah you know whenever people think about natural resources people obviously don't necessarily think about the things that they use on a daily basis right so i think it, can, it would kind of help to remind people uh, what extent we actually do rely on these natural resources you know hmm. and i think every single one of us throughout our day today we've used uncontaminated water hopefully we have eaten food that hasn't made us sick and in fact probably is making us healthier we have access to clothing and shelter we all probably live in a city that's not making us sick with pollution you know these are all things that we are using you and i are now on radio because we have electricity these are all things that aren't even a luxury they're not something that you naturally have this you know this huge 
access to, it's, it should be appreciated that you are able to access them. I like the fact that you actually mentioned a lot of things that a lot of people would generally use in their daily lives. So it's kind of more beneficial for you and I, for everybody else, to actually come up with ways to try to limit the damage that is caused to the environment, you know? Exactly, because that's going to make the the difference in future. And that's how we do it, through sustainable resource management. That's exactly how we can mitigate mitigate this, this damage. And it's really up to us to try to encourage more sustainable practices. We need to preserve animal and plant lives for the future future generations. And one very obvious example that we keep bringing up on the show, but it's so true, is yeah. recycling. And it's easy to think, oh, no, I don't do that. But maybe you really should. I honestly think we've stepped out of the phase where uh, recycling or you know using less water is this hippie sort of green idea. It's really something that we all need to be doing, not mm-hmm. because it's cool, but because it's necessary. And also talking about some of the things we've been speaking about on the show, I know that uh, limiting carbon emission is also one of the things we've touched on in previous shows. And I do remember, obviously, while I was doing research for that particular show, coming across something known as uh, resource substitution, right? So this is basically, in a sense, uh, uh, resource substitution that uh, it's where renewable air resources are basically used instead of the resources we use today. So, for example, electricity, which is an example we used about you and I being on radio, that can actually be produced using some renewable resources such as wind or even solar instead of coal as we are doing right about now, you know? Mm, and it gives you the same output but so much less of a footprint. It still has, re- it still has consequences, sure, but much less. So, I think we can go on and on about this. We've spoken so much about it, as rightly we should. But that's what we are focusing on today on the show, to think more about how we can um, we can shepherd these resources better and really make sure that they can survive longer. Yeah, and I think it will help to also come up with new ways to maybe even produce more energy and sustaining ways that we already are doing it, as well as exploring others. I mean, it will take us forward in a way, you know? Mm. Today on the show, we do this by finding out how we can take better care of our food resources. In Africa, we say a hungry man is an angry man. That when the stomach is at ease, the city is at ease. In our second story, we find out how water and energy are closely linked and crucial resources. Uh, uh, I think there is much effort to be done at the level of water demand. There is a huge amount of water lost in agriculture, for instance. So we should improve the efficiency of, uh, of irrigation and agriculture. And in between those two stories, we'll of course have a lighter note with our unscience feature. And today's unscience is about how people can now stop leaving their gum under a table. You know, when you go to a restaurant or back in high school, how gross it was to try touch the underneath of your table and then there's gum there. Mm, PSA, like we must stop that. I can't handle it. There's a way to stop it. <laughs> I'm very keen to hear that. Before we get into all of that, we'll go into our news. But as always, you can find us on social media. Share your stories with us on Facebook as the Science and Science. Can send us WhatsApp voice notes on 084-078-4912. We're on Twitter as at VowFM and make sure you use that hashtag Science Inside. Next up, we get into a story about food security. This is the Science Inside with DJ Keys and Elma.
Welcome back to the Science Inside. Remember that you can find us on Facebook as the Science Inside and you can tweet us at VowFM, hashtag Science Inside. Today, we are talking about sustainability of natural resources. When we talk about creating sustainable resources, one of the first, the most fundamental ones of being a human being on this earth is, of course, food. And I like how the... Um, the Commissioner Sarah Agba at the African Union explained it to me. In Africa, we say a hungry man is an angry man. That when the stomach is at ease, the city is at ease. When the stomach is not at ease, the city cannot be at ease because people must protest. I have to say, Elna, I actually agree with that. It's actually true. If somebody is really hungry, uh, I also think it affects really everything else in their lives and their ability to also live well, you know. Definitely. It affects your health, your ability to work and think and learn and make a life for yourself. Mm. And it's closely tied to other resources like water. It's obviously tied to poverty. Yeah, especially in Africa, it actually seems, eh? It, I, our continent does have that reputation in a sense of its long problems with food security and chronic hunger and I spoke to Professor Indershaw Wardafer who is a senior professor and researcher at Addis Ababa University. Here's him explaining some of the reasons why Africa has these problems. The reason why it is serious a problem in Africa except some countries the African science and technology landscape is very poor. The competence is not there, the human resource uh, empowerment to improve crops for productivity is not as it should be. Not only the human resource, the infrastructure for doing research. Uh, and when it comes also to policy, the African countries have got good policies. But it is not a matter of getting uh, or having good policies. The policies have to be implemented. To implement a policy, you need human resource an infrastructure and a vision in order really to intertwine whatever policy engagement should be implemented in terms of the productivity problem. So there are problems, but here is the good news. Even though there are serious problems that have been long-standing, mm -hmm. there has been some improvement, in fact, more improvement than you might think. Here's Professor Joachim van Braun, who is the director of the Center for Development Research at Bonn University in Germany and Professor for Economic and Technological Change. This is where he says Africa currently stands. Well, if you look at the actual situation, progress is very significant. I can refer to a recent study in which I was involved. The study is called Nourished, uh, how to achieve a sustainably and improved nutrition in Africa. We reviewed a number of countries and the overall African situation. Many very significant countries have improved the nutrition situation and food security situation by 40 to 50 percent in the last 15 years. So from 2000 to 2016, significant progress. I'm afraid uh, many who see no progress are a bit outdated. Uh, the 1990s didn't look good, but since then things have improved. 
Things have indeed improved, and I think that actually sounds really good. Mm. It's a good reminder that just because you think things are bad, you really have to look at the newest studies mm. and see maybe improvements have been made. Yeah. So yes, but at the same time, just because it's improved doesn't mean that it's great. And there are, yes, there are many more progress hotspots than negative ones, but the negative ones are still there and they're still in a really dire situation. Here's Joachim again. There are tremendous challenges and very unfortunate changes in the negative direction. Negative hotspots, we think of course of uh, Somalia, South Sudan, the situation in the northeast of Nigeria and in the Central African Republic, or Burundi. Uh, that's roughly the list where currently nutrition is declining, where hunger is uh, increasing uh, due to uh, very serious governance and um, war situations. So, you know, for the countries that actually improved, I wonder how, how they did this. How did they actually improve? That's a great question. And the study that Joachim was involved in found that the two things that really make a difference are government commitment, so governments really wanting to change things, Mm -hmm. and cooperation between the key players. So departments like agriculture, health and finance maybe don't sit around a table naturally, but when they're made to sit around a table together, figure out their problems, those problems really do get addressed. So the recipe for success in these countries have have been that the governments have engaged on this issue and that different players cooperate. And that actually makes sense, you know, when I think about it, because it kind of paves the way for better structures for producing enough healthy food. Yeah, and it's important that you mention healthy because food security isn't just that. It's not just having enough food regardless of what it is, even if it's just chocolate. Mm. But what quality is that food? Otherwise, you may always be full, but chronically malnourished. For a long time, uh, the focus in Africa was uh, to address uh, the food problem by producing more at the farm. And that still remains very important, an agriculture productivity agenda, a green revolution agenda. But there's more to a healthy diet and good nutrition. It relates to safe water. It relates to a diet which includes uh, uh, foods rich in so-called micronutrients, the vitamins, the iron, and so on. This is a more recent development uh, that's been given attention to. And part of it has to do with promoting a diversity of crops. So I don't know about you, Keys, but if you think about what you eat in a general day, you've probably eaten maize, rice and wheat in the last week. So maybe your morning cereal, your sandwich at, at lunch, your pasta at dinner. That's all probably wheat or, yeah. or rice. Yeah, that's actually not that diverse, yeah. Yeah, it's sort of a very similar plant um, diversity that we're eating. Mm. We might be eating it in a lot of different ways, but it's still just wheat or still yeah. just maize. And that's where the problem or rather the underutilization of certain crops comes in. Here's Indusho again. There are what we call underutilized crops. Now, the world has got about 7,000 
plant species that are utilized and used. Out of those 7,000, 2,000 species actually are present in Africa. These are indigenous, underutilized wild plants that are gathered. But these crops are resilient to different droughts, to different environmental stresses. So during farming conditions, people go to these crops. And these crops, when they are domesticated, they are not only food based for Africans, they are food based for the entire world. So we, we dwell on, on 20 crops globally. And out of 20 crops, only three crops are mainly used, including maize. Maize with, and the pathogens and the pest, the climate change that, that is taking place, actually the resilience of these crops is uh, very, very questionable. They are very vulnerable. And therefore, the, 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 the global uh, condition must attract the underutilized crops that exist not only in Africa, but in other parts of the world. Using these underutilized crops means increasing the variety of things we can grow and eat and, of course, the nutritional value. But it also contributes to a different problem, that of food safety. Here's Joachim again about how food safety is a growing risk to what we're eating. Uh, given that we have climate change, uh, seasons are shifting, there are droughts and floods in Africa, um, the management of food becomes so much more difficult. So when there is, for instance, a flood and uh, lots of humidity, microtoxins in the major crops are increasing. Uh, so these are fungus infections, which are very carcinogenic. So food safety needs to have a lot more attention in addition to nutrition security and food security. So there's basically concerns about food safety itself, the level of nourishment, and I guess in general, the level of production as well. Mm, and part of that is where does our food come from? And I don't know if you knew this, but the majority of food we're eating as a planet is coming from North and South America. The majority of it for the entire world. And that's fine mm. as long as we have peace and relatively free trade. But in the long run, Joachim was saying to me, Africa would be so much better off if it produced more of its own food and relied less on imports. But really, Joachim was most worried about the future in terms of climate change. Climate change, meaning heat stress, uh, droughts and flooding, will reduce uh, world food production by about 23% by 2050. That's not so far away from now. The world population is still increasing. So we have to do something about climate change quickly. Uh, reduce the carbon pollution. We need to address the um, uh, land and water degradation and enhance productivity to adjust. He said to me that although Africa didn't significantly contribute to climate change, the continent is suffering. It's one of the worst suffering ones, and it will be hit by the changes in the climate especially. And that affects our food as much, if not far more than better technology, safety and diversity of what we eat. If we don't have a climate that you can grow anything in, 
then you know all of that other stuff just becomes a lot more complicated and unnecessary yeah i mean we've all realized what was going down in the western cape with their drought that was affecting a lot of uh, farmers that side so we, we we had an idea of what such problems could cause actually in terms of us creating and producing our own food mm, but i find it so interesting that food security has so many different sides of it it's not just make more yeah. to feed everyone it's a very complex issue yeah we will get back into more talk around sustainability of other resources later in the show. But first, let's get into unscience. You're listening to The Science Inside, bringing you science around major news events. It is now time for unscience. I am so excited because it is my favorite part of the show. Whether you consider yourself a nerd, a science geek or not. This is the moment in the show where we look at the strange side of research. This is where we actually look at uh, the weird and wonderful side of what scientists actually spend a lot of time, efforts and money on. Tell us more about today's package. Please. Well, look, uh, today's package is about something known as gumvelopes. And this one was created by an entrepreneur and innovator, right? Not necessarily a scientist, but it's something that I think a lot of people would find really useful. It's about, I'd say, the revolution in disposing of chewing gum in restaurants, buses, malls, you know, anywhere where you feel like, okay, I need to get rid of this gum. I've been chewing on it for too long. This is what it's all about. That's what it's known as Gumvelope. And yeah, man, I have reproduced today's story. And you could also check out Improbable Research for more science like this one. Unusual. Unlikely. Unscience. So how do you get rid of that chewing gum you're done with at the end of the day? Are you one of those people that just decide to just chuck it under the table wherever you are? Do you maybe wrap it around a plastic or a a saviour maybe or you like those people that whenever they're in public all they see is let me just chuck it out the window well there's a new invention that might help you out whenever you're stuck in a situation where you've been chewing gum and now you're getting into a restaurant or something like that it's an invention that gives restaurant diners a possibly elegant way to basically dispose of their chewed chewing gum and also gives restaurants a new means of advertising in terms of advertising themselves or anything else they might have in the shop now this invention was marketed under the name Gumbelope. Yep, you guessed it. There is a patent that has been registered out in the United States that basically deals with chewing gum disposal and a brand new system that people do use that side to get rid of their old chewing gum. Uh, the chewing gum disposal system actually includes a plurality of chewing gum disposal envelopes that are configured to receive one or more pieces of chewing gum as well as a chewing gum disposal container. So basically how it works is in disposing of a piece of chewing gum, an envelope is then removed from the holding compartment and the piece of gum is placed inside that particular envelope and the envelope is inserted into the disposal compartment. Sounds really straightforward and easy, right? Now, the chewing gum disposal system, as well as method, provides it a, a bit of an efficient and sanitary way. And some even are saying it's a pleasant method for the disposal of a chewing gum that is suitable for public places, including restaurants, bars, buses, movie theaters, ballparks, stores, and even malls. I, for one thing, it actually kind of works, right? But who came up with this invention and why did you decide to come up with such? I'm talking about an entrepreneur, inventor, and an avid 
gum chewer. Yes, she loves her gum that much. The lady I'm talking about here is Rebecca Craig, who has proudly launched the Gumbelope. This is a product aimed at changing the way you and I dispose of our chewing gum. Now, the birth of Gumbelope comes from both Craig's observation as well as personal practice. She was asked, like, Miss Craig, why spend so much time effort trying to do this? She says, while living in California, I actually began noticing that people in restaurants had no place to dispose of their used chewing gum. And in the past, patrons have actually used the saviors that have been given in the restaurant. Some even went as far as using a straw wrapper, sugar packets. Some even disposed of their gum by placing it just under the table, like we used to do back in high school, right? Now, the problem with those kind of methods of disposal is that they aren't disposal per se. Instead, it actually creates a lot more work for the restaurant and sometimes costs them more money as the staff needs to scrape off the bottom of the tables, which is also time-consuming and costly. And the disposal of gum with the saviors simply just doesn't work because now and then we leave them on the table, which creates a bit of a mess for the next customers. Additionally, there's also a problem with having an unpleasant and sticky gum and paper mess sitting on the table as food is being served sometimes, right? So frustrated by this, Craig Esther says that she began to think of ways to circumvent this ongoing problem and her solution was very simple. It was a small, self-contained envelope dubbed as Gumbelope. Unusual, unlikely, unsigned. So there you have it, Alna. Gumbelope is a thing. So do they just hand these out to, ca- uh, to customers now? Well, a lot of restaurants out in the States have bought them in bulk, obviously. And as you walk in and they can see Alna's chewing, they'll just hand it over to you. Like, there you go, man. Huh. So it's something you can use, you know? I am a huge fan of this because I myself don't chew gum. I prefer, like, mints. Gum has always freaked me out. Um, so I hate the idea of anybody else's gum being <laughs> near me. So... I would give my money to this gumbelope lady. A lot of high schools in Sarapa should really consider investing in that. Oh, that was terrible. I, I, I think I'm still traumatized from high school. Don't ever touch yeah. under anything. A chair. I and think it's so gross that when you find it still wet, like, no. they just put this here. Oh, no. That's yeah. terrible. Gumbelopes for everyone. Gumbelopes everywhere. That was Unscience. Uh, credit for the music goes to Ben Sounds. And next up, we look at how our water and energy use in the country is a very closely linked system. This is the Science Inside with DJ Keys and Elna. Welcome back to the Science Inside. Don't forget to send us messages on Facebook on uh, Science Inside and tweet us at VowFM hashtag Science Inside. Today we are chatting about the sustainability of resources that we all need and use. And you know what, Ellen? I think we can all agree that one of the most important resources that we must make more sustainable use of is water. Yeah, d- just one look at the Western Cape and yeah. their struggles, we can all agree. Exactly. I mean, I know how we've spent a lot of time talking about the water crisis in that particular province. But uh, honestly, the scarcity of water is a a global problem, you know. So according to the World Health Organization and UNICEF, a joint monitoring program for water supply and sanitation progress on sanitation and drinking water uh, 2010 report, just over 780 million people actually do not have access to clean and safe water worldwide. That is about one in nine people. 
people. So that's a very scary number. And just under half of those people are in sub-Saharan Africa. So the effects of such water shortages actually lead to diseases, especially in developing countries, with 80% of illnesses being linked to poor water as well as sanitation conditions. And when it comes to water, there's no alternative. You can't wake up and decide, I'm not going to drink anything today or I don't need sanitation. There is no other option. So I knew that it was bad, but those figures really put it into perspective. Exactly. I mean, the thing is that resources like water, they are not really used alone and they can actually affect other resources that we have. So while at uh, the World Science Forum, we actually caught up with Professor uh, Jard Alcaraz, who is the head of research and general secretary of the Middle East Desalination Research Center. uh, That is the MEDRC Water Research. Here he is explaining what the energy water nexus is and why it is so important actually there is no unique definition of that concept but it simply means uh, the uh, the connection the interlinkages that exist between water and energy uh, uh, water is required to produce energy for example in dams and what we call hydropower uh, in a, a power station water is used to, for cooling and vice versa also energy is required for water uh, in all the, the processes of water. I mean, uh, producing water requires uh, energy, like desalination, for instance. Uh, uh, um, uh, treating water needs energy and, and transporting water needs energy. So obviously the, uh, the concept means simply that if we, we want to ensure the security of water and the security of energy, that should be taken into account together. Not only, I mean, care about uh, ensuring uh, water security and we don't care about how much energy we consume or the, on the contrary also we just want to produce the, uh, the most energy possible and without caring about the water because both resources are scarce and so we need to uh, manage the both resources together. Okay, I get it. So basically the nexus, which is a fancy word, sounds like the matrix, but it just means that we need to look at water and energy from a holistic view, not two separate crises to fix. Exactly. It is a very different approach to the views, these crises. And it's also important to look at this because there may be a realistic threat of us not having enough water as well as energy. Uh, according to the UN estimation by the 2030, we will need 30% more of water, 45% more of energy. So definitely, this is a big, uh, a big problem. Now we have, you know, with the population growth, with economic growth, with uh, the climate change impact, etc. We are exerting a lot of pressure on the on the on such resources. So what should should be done? Obviously, there are uh, uh, what we call. I mean, the importance of applying the nexus is ensuring the security of water and energy. So we need more coordination between the people that manage water resources and the people managing energy resources. So that should be done at the level of, uh, I mean, decision makers. So, for example, the minister is in charge of water, minister in charge of energy. They should be uh, should have a dialogue uh, to discuss together and get, you know, a, 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 I mean, a mutual understanding of how they, they are going to manage water resources, sharing also data because. Uh, the decision maker at level, for example, water sector, when he wants to manage water, he needs to or to know how much energy he has. Uh, so uh, at this level, at level of science, we need to find solutions, innovation. For example, in desalination now, it's uh, we have a huge capacity in the world. We have uh, like 200 millions uh, uh, of kilowatt hour uh, uh, per meter cube uh, daily uh, uh, energy consumed. 
for desalination. It's a huge amount. So desalination now, we have new technologies. We need to, to go for renewable desalination. So we, in that way, we, we are uh, probably we will, uh, will contribute to reducing the environmental impact of desalination. We will contribute to uh, uh, improving the efficiency of energy and water at the same time. We have many other examples, like for example, here in Jordan, they have one uh, uh, very known uh, uh, wastewater treatment plant and uh, run or empowered by solar energy. So that's uh, good to encourage this, uh, this kind of, ex of, of, uh, of uh, project. Also, for example, more and more we can see in some many areas of the world what the, what sorts of greenhouses in which the use desalination to desalinate seawater and convert it in, 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 irriga in irrigation water to irrigate crops. And then in such greenhouse system, we have a condensation system to pick up the drops of water. And so we try to optimize the, the use of water energy. And uh, even we, uh, we, we, we not only ensure the security of water energy, but also agriculture that we call an even water energy food nexus, because also food is very related with water and energy. Mm. Interesting things being brought out there by Joao, hey? Yeah, and just to refresh people's minds, desalination is the process of removing salt from seawater and making it fresh water. And we, of course, know that Cape Town recently opened a desalination project to help alleviate the, its water crisis. And obviously, we're hoping that that actually helps. But concerns do have uh, have been raised, actually, about desalination as we need a large amount of energy to run these particular plants. And it's also accompanied by huge costs to building and running these plants as well. So it turns out that huge amounts of water do return to the sea with more salt content than was used in the desalination. So I asked the professor whether this was uh, the route we should actually take. Yeah, that's why, I mean, the, the right, the right uh, policies in water, I mean, we should uh, adopt the integrated water resource management. So it's about balancing the, between the, the water demand and water, or water supply. So we shouldn't just think about water supply, I mean, more desalination uh, uh, to, to provide more water. Because uh, uh, I think there is much effort to be done at the level of water demand. There is a huge amount of water lost in agriculture, for instance. So we should improve the efficiency of, uh, of irrigation in agriculture. We may save a lot of water, so we, we may not need that much desalination in this case. Also, I think uh, 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 effort should be done at the level of reusing wastewater. Wastewater is a huge, I mean, uh, uh, resource. We shouldn't just like, uh, I mean, uh, keep it, as you said, uh, come back to the sea. I mean, if we treat it, there is uh, additional resources that could be uh, uh, used for many, for domestic or industrial or agricultural uses. So there is a lot of things to be done at the level of demand management. Also, awareness campaign in schools and the citizens. This could be done also at the level of water pricing policies. For example, in many countries, they subsidize the water, for instance. And this policy doesn't necessarily encourage citizens to, uh, uh, to save water. Uh, so, uh, the, I mean, when you do a, a, a good pricing policy, doesn't mean you you are going to 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 increase the price of water for the citizen. No, you just considering beyond a certain conception, you you are really putting the, the price higher. So people, if they they, 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 they understand that, they we will save a lot of water. So definitely, I mean, desalination is a, is one of the alternative for water supply. But we shouldn't look only at, at this at this side. We should look. And overall as picture, integrated water resource management means looking 
looking at the demand, trying to reduce the demand, then the supply, we should also more and more invest in research and development so to make the sanitation more sustainable and more clean. Because sustainable, if we use the, the conventional technology and uh, with the uh, fuel, uh, I mean, we are somehow uh, polluting. We, we also, we shouldn't forget that when you get the fresh water from desalination, for instance, you have rejected water, what we call brine. And this brine is uh, pumped in the sea. It may have uh, impacts on the marine ecosystem. If it is inland, sometimes also they may uh, uh, contaminate the groundwater, make it more salty, etc. So definitely we should look at the whole picture and try also to invest on, in, in a way that we such technologies, we should improve it in terms of reducing its environmental impact. I like his point about efficient farming really making a big difference to to our water use. You know, I also liked that point that he raised there. And I'm also getting from the professor that uh, if we need a broader view, then we are dealing with and these kind of issues. I mean, it's something that we also need to consider. But I do know that a lot of people will be saying that what uh, Professor Jord is actually saying is well and all and good, right? But how does it apply here, back at home in South Africa. And for that, I had a quick chat with uh, Professor Roseanne Dieb, uh, the Executive Officer of the Academy of Science of South Africa and Emeritus Professor in Environmental Sciences at the University of KwaZulu-Natal. Here's what she had to say about that. Okay, so I think it's particularly important for South Africa because of the fact that um, we have slightly different challenges from perhaps some of other African countries in the sense that um, we have a better energy infrastructure, we have a a grid to which most people are connected, Um, but we face water challenges that that are huge. And we all know the current situation with regard to the the drought in the Western Cape. And we know that this is going to get exacerbated as we we go forward with, with climate change. So I think there's some particular challenges that we in South Africa need to need to look at. I think we need to look at the um, the water usage and, and some of the current um, energy sources that we've got. Um, we, we 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 know that um, the coal-fired power stations are heavily water intense, um, although there has been quite a lot of research done with dry cooling towers and and so on with the. You know, by Eskom with the fossil fuel um, burning. So what I'm really getting from her is that we need to focus on activities that must be less water intensive and still do their job. So it's something like providing access to water to those that don't have it water intensive. Correct. I mean, as to uh, your question, according to Professor Dia, but it's very important that whatever way we increase access to water, those methods are not water intensive. So it's a, it's a bit of a tricky ask, but it requires a lot of innovation as well. If there's one lesson I can really take away from this story is that we need to have a broader approach and think out of the box for our solutions. Mm. And that's something that always worries me when a new technology comes up and now we're all running after hydropower, all running after desalination. It's the ultimate answer. But that's not usually how it works. Every technology has a consequence and we do have to have this broader view. Yeah, that's true. I agree. We've been talking about sustainable resources. Stay with us on The Science Inside. This is the Science Inside with DJ Keys and Elma. 
Keys, I feel like after this hour, I have a renewed sense of respect for things we so easily take for granted, like food and water and energy. It also goes to show that uh, some of these resources are interlinked, you know. Uh, food security, for example, doesn't just rely on that. I mean, we can also talk about other resources that kind of work in hand in hand with them. Mm. And I'd also like to become an advocate for gum envelopes, <laughs> the funny invention we talked about in Unscience yeah. today, where you can put your, your used gum in a little envelope. Yeah, I think it's the nicest and easiest way to dispose of the gum that you're done with so that you stop sticking it under tables. Like, uh. oh, no, please don't. <laughs> thank you. A big thank you goes to all of our guests featured on the show today, including Indershaw Waterfa, Joachim von Braun, Professor Roseanne Diab, and Joad El Karaz. This evening's show was presented by Alna Schutz and myself, DJ Keys. We have a team that uh, backs us up as producers, Gabriel Chemuru, as well as Tech by Kutrano Saram. As always, you can find the whole podcast on journalism.coza forward slash science. For social media, find us on uh, Facebook as The Science Inside or send us tweets at VOWFM. The Science Inside is produced by the Wits Radio Academy, funded in part by the South African Department of Science and Technology. This has been our last show for the year, but we'll catch you again next year. The Science Inside, Monday from 6 to 7 p.m. on PowerFM 88.1. Listen to the Science Insight podcast on www.journalism.co.za.